we're surrounded by words. TV, radio, music, Spotify, Hulu, Netflix, podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and, a, and countless other media and platforms. We're surrounded by words from the moment we wake up until we finally go to sleep again at night. Our ability to take in and consume the words of others and to disseminate our own words on a global stage is unparalleled in human history. And our appetite for words seems insatiable. We take in more and more and more and we never seem satisfied. Words are powerful things. And I think we all intuitively know that, but I think also that sometimes it's, their power seems kind of diluted by just the sheer volume that we're faced with every day. But that's deceptive. We might feel numbed to their effects, but their power is still very real. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us then that words and how we use them is one of the most common topics in the book of Proverbs. And the proverb we're looking at this morning is found in 1821. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And when I read that, I see two connected but distinct lives and deaths. Right? There's the big picture eternal life and death, right? It's through the word of God that he calls us to repentance, calls us to trust in Christ. And it's through the rejection of that word that we are condemned if we do reject it. But there's also the day-to-day -day question of are, are we thriving or are we withering? Today, do you feel alive and vibrant or do you feel dead on the vine and dying? Death and life are in the power of the tongue and we will eat its fruit. The first question that we have to ask ourselves, I think, is which fruit are we already eating? Whose voices are we listening to? Because the voices that we listen to will determine whether we're living or dying, whether we're thriving or withering. And the fruit that we're eating will have a direct impact on the fruit that our own tongues bear. And obviously there is life and the power of God's word, right? He just has to say, let there be light. And the light of a billion trillion stars burst into existence. He just had to say, Lazarus, come out, and life sprang back into the rotting flesh of the man who'd been dead for days. We know the big, earth-shattering power that is in God's word. We know it's through his word that we learn of our sin and our need for a savior. It's through his word that we see Jesus for who he is. But what place does God's word actually hold in our day-to-day -day lives? 
I think that in our culture, we're pretty close to a saturation point with words, right? What I mean is, I don't know that it's possible for us to add any more words to our consumption than we already have. And so if we can't possibly add any more, then it's a vital question to ask, which words are we choosing to take in? And just as importantly, which words are we choosing not to? Is God's word just one of the other sources of words that we fill our days with? I doubt that's it for most of us. I hope it's not here this morning. We know the importance of God's word. We know how vital it is for our lives. We know we need it. We know it's beneficial for us. But do we really crave it like we should? Do we love it more than all the other words that are out there? Or do we see it kind of the way I, I view the dishes? Like, I know it's important. I know it has to be done. But it's not like I look forward to it at the end of the night. For those of you who were here at Seek last week, this example is going to sound very familiar. In the chapter or the introduction that we read, Piper talked about spending the summer away from his wife, his then fiance. And I'm not trying to one up Piper, but Krista and I spent our entire relationship long distance before we got married. We started dating right before I came here to go to Moody. And for two years, I lived here and she lived in California. And I don't recommend that. <laughs> Long distance is brutal. We were determined to make it work, and we did. But here's this person that I love, that I want to marry, that I want to spend the rest of my life with, and I go months without seeing her. We obviously spent a lot of time on the phone back then, usually in the evening when we were both done with work and classes. And I know, especially the freshman year, that I was that stereotypical freshman who's trying desperately to make the long distance relationship work with a high school girlfriend and, you know, come on, is it really gonna work out? Like, shouldn't you be enjoying the college experience? I knew there were people who saw me that way, but I didn't care. Nothing got in the way of those phone calls. And I did a little rough math and I think in those two years, we probably spent close to 80% of that time apart. So you can imagine how important the other 20% was. Right? I finally get home, and I definitely don't see spending time with Krista like I see doing the dishes. I know it's important. I know it's healthy for the relationship, so yeah, I guess I should probably do it. I know that all I wanted to do was to finally be able to spend time with her. Do we yearn for God's word? Do we long to spend time with him and look forward to the next time that we can spend in quiet meditation? Do we, do I guard our time in the word as jealously as I guarded those phone calls?
Do we even hunger for it like we hunger for lunch at 11.30? Or are we honestly pretty content with the other words we're surrounded by? Do we spend all day just gorging on the words around us and find that our appetite for his word has kind of dissipated? We're spending the summer reading A Hunger for God by John Piper and talking about fasting. And maybe fasting from food isn't for all of us for whatever reason. But maybe we should all consider whether we should spend time fasting from the other words we're filling ourselves with. Do we need to spend time? There's nothing wrong with them. But like Piper says in the introduction, sometimes it's the apple pie that's more dangerous for us than the poison. Do we need to spend time putting those other words aside so that we can redevelop our hunger for his word? Life is in the power of the tongue. And that is certainly never more true than with God's word. So are we loving it and eating its fruit? If we love it, we will be eating its abundant fruit and we will live and thrive. And if we don't, we will absolutely wither away. There is life in the power of the tongue, but there is also death. And there's no doubt that there's death in the power of Satan's words. When you think about it, his words are the real power he has against us. Did God actually say you will not eat from any tree of the garden? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Death is in the power of the tongue, and he wields it like a sword. God's word is inherently powerful. It's, intrinsic, it's an intrinsic part of what his word is. Satan's is not. The power of his words rests in his ability to twist and pervert the word of God. Did God actually say you should not eat from any tree of the garden? No. No. God's command before the fall was meant to be light and easy. Eat from any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. But all of a sudden, in Satan's hands, God's word starts to seem burdensome and cruel. And then he follows it up, not just with the denial, you might surely die, but with, I think, the even more insidious God knows. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. The attack is against his goodness. It's not that God's misinformed. He's not mistaken. He knows. He knows and he's holding out on you. There's no, there's no reason not to have it. And if he won't give it to you, just reach out and take it. It's easy for us to understand why some things are sinful. 
We understand why stealing and murder are sins because the harm that they do is obvious to us. But what about when the harm is less obvious? What about when everything in our culture, everyone in our culture tells us there's no harm in that? No one's going to die. I think the success of that tactic is most obvious in our culture in its views on sex and sexuality. Right? Obviously, the culture at large takes a laissez-faire, whatever makes you happy view of it. But even in the church, I get the sense that there's a growing feeling of, of doubt, of, well, I don't know why this is sin. There's a growing doubt of that God didn't give us these commands based on a love for us and a desire for what's best for us. He just kind of arbitrarily chose them and we're stuck with them. And all the while, there's that whisper, God knows. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with any of it. He knows you won't die. Death is in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So how do we resist the power of the devil when he speaks death? I hope it's fairly obvious, right? If his power rests in his ability to twist and pervert God's word, we have to be spending time in his word. We have to know it and understand it. We rest in the power of his word and the life that's in it. Death is in the power of the tongue, and that is fruit that we don't want to eat. We have to be regularly, constantly eating the fruit of life that's found in God's words, or we will fall victim to the devil's attacks. So whose words are we listening to? Which fruit are we eating? Are we thriving? Or are we withering? One way we can know is by what fruit our own tongues are bearing. Because there is certainly death in the power of our tongues. Right? We might not be able to just speak and cause someone to keel over and die, but our words are lethal all the same. We all know the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is a lie. Right? Broken bones heal relatively quickly. The wounds left by words can linger and fester for years. We are very proficient at brandishing death with our tongues. We lie, and each lie, even the little white ones, erode a little bit of trust and damage relationships. Right? We hurl insults online that we'd never have the gall to say if the person were in the room. And when the person is in the room, our tongues drip with condescension and contempt. And that's just what we say to their face, let alone what we say to their back. 
because we love gossip, right? The secrecy and the conflict are a delight to our sinful hearts. And it spreads and kills like cancer in a community. And just in case you might be tempted to think I'm exaggerating to make a point, look back to James 3, which Felice read earlier. I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 3, verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Death is in the power of the tongue. And that death is so deeply ingrained in our sinful hearts that we don't even have to be intentional in wielding it. Jesus says in Matthew 12, verses 33 to 37, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. I don't know about you, but that one gives me pause. On the day of judgment, people will be held account for every careless word they speak. <clears throat> um, that's terrifying without Christ. And we're so quick to defend our careless words. Right? I, I didn't mean it. I wasn't thinking and Jesus' response seems to be, you're right, you weren't thinking. And so the contents of your heart were able to slip out unfiltered for once. And I think our words often do the most damage in our own homes and often with tragic results. How do we talk to our spouses? How do we talk to our kids? Younger people, how do you talk to your parents? Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Do our words bring healing in our homes? 
Or do they feel like sword thrusts in the hearts of our family? Man, I want to talk to you directly for a second. We're called to love our wives the way that Christ loves the church. Does that show in the way that we talk to her? The way we talk about her? Or are words filled with harshness and condescension? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And how do we talk to our kids? If God is our Heavenly Father, then dads, we have the ability to make a lasting impression on how our kids understand that. When they hear God is your Father, what sort of emotion or imagery does that stir up in them? Do we talk to them the way that Christ talks to us? Or is it all too often filled with frustration and impatience? And believe me, I'm talking to myself as much as anyone else. I snapped at Jack like five minutes after I wrote this. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our families thrive or wither on the fruit of our tongues. Death is in the power of the tongue, and we wield it like a sword. But in Christ, we've been given better hearts with better tongues and better fruit. Because there is life in the power of our tongues as well. We have the ability to soothe wounds as well as inflict them. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we are filling ourselves with God's word, if we are feasting on its abundant fruit and thriving, our hearts will be filled with the life of the gospel. And out of that abundance, it will overflow into our own words. Have you ever known someone who's just a joy to talk to every time, no matter what? For me, I think of Bill Goodman, who many of you know, and unfortunately a lot of you don't. Bill's a member of our church who, for health reasons, hasn't been able to attend in a long time. And because of his health problems, he's very aware of his own mortality. And yet he's so filled with the goodness and the life of Christ that every time he speaks, it just flows out of his mouth. And I go to visit Bill regularly, and I'm convinced that every time I'm the one who's more encouraged by those visits than the other way around. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. I think we've probably experienced something like this to one degree or another. I know I have, where you're struggling with something and you're filled with doubt and you're, you're preaching the truth to yourself over and over and over, but for some reason it just feels hollow today. And you, you keep preaching it to yourself, you keep preaching, and it just, 
it doesn't have the same power it usually does. And then a brother or a sister comes along and they say the same thing that you've been saying to yourself all day, and all of a sudden there's life in it again. It's vibrant. We need to be in community because we need to hear the gospel from one another. It's not enough to hear it just from the pulpit on Sunday mornings. We know we need it day after day, hour after hour, moment after moment. We need to be in community with one another because we need that strength in our brother's voice to tell us who we are in Christ and who he is. One of the commentaries I read pointed out that it might seem simplistic, but one of, one of the best applications for this is we need to be willing to say, I'm sorry. And again, that might seem too simple. Like, really, that, that's the best application you can come up with? But how bad are we at saying those words? Right? We bristle against having to say it. We usually blame our circumstances. I'm sorry, I'm tired. I'm sorry, I'm hungry. I'm sorry, I had a bad day at work. Or we blame the person we're supposedly apologizing to. I'm sorry I did X, but you know, you did Y, and what was I supposed to do? And they're all just variations of the original. This woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. A couple months ago, I accidentally offended a friend of mine. And I realized it, and I thought, okay, I'm going to see him tomorrow. I need to apologize and reconcile with him. Then all of a sudden, my thoughts took a different turn. I was like, you know what? I can't believe he actually got offended by that. <laughs> like, it was, I, I wasn't being malicious. It was a completely innocuous statement, and he was actually bothered by that. You know, the real problem here is he's too thin-skinned. And yeah, I, kn I know I should apologize to him, but I really, I really ought to talk to him, too, about how thin-skinned he is. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me before I saw him the next morning. And said, why is it so hard for you to just say, I'm sorry. You caused him pain. Why is it so hard to just humble yourself and want to see him healed? Remember Proverbs 12, 18 said, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing when our harsh words have already inflicted a few sword thrusts, how willing are we to humble ourselves and try to bring healing? There is life in the power of the tongue. And as we eat its fruit, we bear more fruit with which to feed others. And in the abundance of life in Christ, we all thrive together. I want to end with one last exhortation from James 2, starting in verse 15. 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go, be warmed and be filled. What good is that? What good is that? Life is in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. One of those fruits is us producing more words of life like we talked about. But one of the other fruits has to be works of life that accompany those words. Words alone are not a substitute for necessary action. And when action is needed, those words just seem empty. If we're not spurred on by the gospel to live it out with one another, especially within the community of the body, we're still missing something. I think we're speaking words about the gospel without actually speaking the gospel to each other. Jesus spoke the gospel powerfully to us, but he also lived the gospel powerfully, and he clearly wasn't afraid to get down into the muck and mire of the world in order to love us. When we see a brother or sister struggling, we must speak words of life to them, but those words will ring hollow and false if we're not also looking for practical, real-world ways to share their burdens with them. Whether it's providing for financial needs or doing things for them that they can't do for themselves, or maybe just grieving with them as they grieve. When we hear the gospel and when we speak it to one another, it should excite and energize us to love and live for each other the way that Christ loves and lives for us. Life is in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. There is life in God's word. Feast on its fruit, and in its abundance, life will overflow out of you and your word so that others may eat as well. Life is in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit Eat and live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the bread of life. You are the living water. You satisfy us when there is nothing else that can. And Father, I ask that you would increase our hunger for our Lord Jesus, that we would be consumed by our need for him, that we would be constantly running back to him. Lord, let us eat from the abundance of your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.